Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us again on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the stories of immigrants in the United States. We are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe so that you do not miss an episode. Today, we have a guest host, Lillian Medina, and um, we are happy to have her on today just to put a little twist to you always hearing my voice uh, during the interviews. So I will turn things over to her to take it away. So over to you, Lillian. Thank you, Simone. I'm so happy to be back and this time as a guest host. And especially because I have the honor to conduct this episode with a woman that I respect and admire so, so much. Uh, Tope is a Nigerian-American social impact entrepreneur, author, educator, and business advisor. She is also the founder of SheEO, a project that gathers the most determined and diverse women from African descent. She is also the founder of United for Kids Foundation and hosted Impact Africa. Topic speaks to global audiences with a mission to inspire. She's an alumni uh, of the University of Lagos in Nigeria, Emory University in Atlanta, and the University of Oxford in uh, the United Kingdom. She's also a certified public accountant in the U.S. and co-owner of Judo Farms with her husband, and she teaches uh, agricultural business courses at the University of Maryland. I had the personal pleasure and blessing to meet Tope through our um, program that's called Empowered Women International. That's now that it is now a program. Uh, of the Latino Economic Development Center, where she provides um, financial literacy to women who are ready to develop their business ideas into a business plan. Tope, I'm so happy to have you here. And I just want to say hi and invite you to um, tell us a bit about yourself, your heritage, and you know your family, anything that uh, you want to open this conversation with. Thank you so much. Really, I'd like to make the topic that you were introducing in the intro. So when you get to know her, let me know because she sounds fabulous. But my name, I'm standing in for her today. My name is Tope Fakungisi. And I uh, describe myself as, first of all, a Nigerian and then an American. So I see myself everywhere I go as somebody who builds bridges, bridges that impact, bridges that develop, bridges that soothe, bridges that inspire whether I'm doing that through money or through, you know, charitable causes or through um, my different programs that I organize for women and children. I just want to make sure that whatever I'm doing is inspirational, is developmental and is good. 
it is very inspirational. I can speak for myself and for the many women that we have known in common through the work that we've done together. Um, so you are accomplishing your mission. Let me tell you that. Um, you. No, I am. I'm, like I said, I'm honored to 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 hear about your story. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's your um, family and your like how do you arrive to the U.S. what was that experience how long have you been in the country so this is such a um, perfect time I could, it couldn't be more perfect to talk about my immigrant story because I came to the U.S. in 2002 so by May um, 8th it will be exactly 20 years that I moved here and I moved here to go to school I, at that time, went to graduate school at Emory University to do an MBA. And my, my goal was actually to go back because my dad, uh, he was alive then. He was an engineer and he wanted me to come back to Nigeria and just kind of continue my career, which I'd started back home. But, you know, after work, after um, being in school for a year, they, they said, oh, you could get your um, extra one year work visa. I was like, OK, well, why not? Let me get some experience for going back. And I got the experience. The next thing, I was just going from one job to the other until one day I paused and I said, what exactly are you doing? You know, and wow. I made the decision to engage both places. And I said, you know what? Why choose? I might as well make both places my home. In terms of my family background, I have, um, I have two sisters. No, I'm sorry. Why am I saying I have two sisters? <laughs> I actually have, four, actually have four sisters and one brother. And um, they are, three of us are accountants. The other two sisters aren't. And my brother is a pilot and an engineer. He um, lives, he, him and I live in the US. My mom is alive and well in Nigeria, but my father has passed on. Okay, well, thank you. And um, so tell us also, I, I am curious to know, uh, and this is one of the things that um, inspired me the most when, when I talk to people about their dreams, right? So you said you came here 20 years ago in, in May. Is that, is that right? Yes. So 20 years ago when you came, what was your dream? When, what, what were you thinking when you arrived to uh, the U.S., the culture and everything? It's very different. Um, at that moment in time, what was your dream? How has that transformed? And what has been some of the challenges that you have encountered in that process? Thank you so much. That's such a crucial question, really, that I try to answer myself occasionally. So when I was um, coming to the U.S., one of my friends reminds me of this all the time. I can't remember saying it, but she told me that I said I was going to come here and I was going to build a bridge. And I'm sure I probably said that, but I didn't even think... I knew what that meant or what building a bridge between, you know, the U.S. and Nigeria would look like. But I also think that, you know, when I was doing my interview to, to go to grad school, I had talked extensively about how I wanted to reconnect um, people of African descent who are in the U.S. with um, the motherland in Africa. And, you know, just to make sure that Africa as a whole is not seen as this dependent continent. So I had all those lofty ideas, but still I was coming here to pursue my dreams as an accountant and as a business person. And the way this has evolved is that I've really still stayed tr true to my mission. Because when I came to the US, 
I, um, in October of 2002, I was missing home and I decided to start a charitable organization called United for Kids Foundation. United for Kids is still alive, is still well, and we're still doing a lot of work in Nigeria right now. So those kind of things have stayed true. But the things that have changed, you know, I think when I, I didn't, if anybody told me that I would not be a partner in an accounting firm right now, I would say, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm going to be an accountant till I die. But I ended up not enjoying that anymore. I wanted to do, use my finance skills to do more teaching. And that's why you and I met at uh, LEDC, because I want to um, bring that passion for making money, keeping money, retaining money to help people who are immigrants, who are coming here and who have all of these great plans and not knowing how America can derail those plans if you're not careful. People come here in search of the American dream, but eventually we end up chasing somebody else's dream. Mm. Yeah, so it's, um, it's something that I have fallen into that landmine myself many times. And one of the things that I, um, I have done about it, like I said, is teaching with LEDC, teaching immigrant women, teaching refugee women about money. Because that is, honestly, I think, I always tell people that Nigeria and developing countries in general can be bad. However, America can be worse if you don't get your money right. So it's so important that, you know, we, um, we get this, we, we, we get our money story right and we don't leave our plans to somebody else. Because I have, I always tell people, I have paid every kind of taxes that you think they pay in this country, I've paid it. I've taken all kinds of loans that they take in this country, I've taken it, but now I don't do debt because I've seen how much of a trap it can be to you achieving your American dream. So uh, in terms of um, what I want to do with that going forward, one of my plans this year is to begin to have digital programs, digital courses, especially one that I'm calling 20 things I wish I knew about money when I came to the US, which uh, it will be one for every year I've spent here, which I hope that you know everybody comes into this country and they listen to it and they're like, oh, you know what? I took something from there. And perhaps we'll sp uh, translate it to Spanish too so that the Spanish immigrants can also get you know, some of that uh, knowledge. Absolutely. And I'm going to be on top of you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Me, too. Cannot, Me too. Me <laughs> too. I, I cannot stop talking to my friends, um, <laughs> Spanish speaking friends about you. And I'm like, oh my God, I wish she had like these materials in Spanish because they are so good. And um, one of the things when you were talking, I remember uh, in one of the classes that uh, you were giving, you were uh, mentioning a specific uh, example that really touched me. And you were talking about how, how it is very important to have a plan and in the context of like budgeting and bud a budget being your roadmap to like your dream and where, you're, where you want to be. And there's a lot of things that get to it, right? Like publicity about like the BMW that that somebody else has and that now you want to have. Um, <laughs> so I, I and, and it's really life-changing. It, it, it is inspiring because you don't really see these things because you're, bom you're bombarded with um, commercials and, you know, uh, publicity that is telling you this is the life that you need to live. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, we don't we don't stop to ask ourselves, uh, is this the life that I want to live? Is this the life that I came here to live? Mm, 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 mm.
you're so right. You know, I, one of the things, one of the aha moments for me about that was in 2000 and maybe 2010 or 2011, I just bought this big house, which truly was too big for me in Baltimore. But I thought it's my American dream. What? I came here to buy these houses that I see on television. And so I went ahead and bought this house. And the, one of the things that happened was as the market was booming, I got a call from the mortgage um, lender one day and they said, do you know you have $80,000 equity in your house? I said, and then what? And then this man proceeded to say, oh, you could take that money out. I said, oh, really? Educate me again. I, I could take it out. <laughs> and, you know, at this point, he didn't know what I did for a living. So I said, oh, I could. He said, yes. I said, and then what would I use it to do? He said, oh, you could buy some Jaguar with some mean rims. I said, okay, so let me just first of all tell you that I'm a CPA. So my work is about money. But secondly, let me also say that I came to the U.S. on an airplane. I don't want to go back on a boat or in a basket. So we're not, we're, we're, we're not going to do this and we're not going to have this call. So you're going to take me off your list. And shortly after the entire market collapsed and all of this, you know, crazy things happened to the mortgage industry and people really lost a lot of money. People lost their homes. And, you know, Yes, there were a lot of these kinds of lending practices target immigrants, not just immigrants who look like me, but immigrants who look like you, because they've come here and they, um, they've been told about this American dream and they are working hard and they want to achieve it. And a lot of people flee from their countries, not from middle, inco uh, middle income classes, but from lower income classes. So this is their chance to actually move up. But then I tell people, are you really moving up when you're moving into debt? Is that really what you're doing? Or you're really moving down into a place you don't want? So I always tell people that you must have your own plan. Because if you're going to meet somebody who has these big ideas and these lofty plans for you, and you don't have your own plan, you're going to get into trouble because you will be forced to fit into his own plan. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely right. And um in that same subject, I want to ask you, um, because I know you work with a lot of people and particularly immigrant women who um, are working on their own businesses or, you know, um, trying to organize their finances. And from what we've talked, I think we understand that understanding how the system works is crucial, right? It is, it is the first thing that we need to do. However, for immigrants and particularly for immigrant women, I know that there's a lot of other things, challenges and barriers that make it difficult that even if we understand how the system works, it is, it is more difficult for us to, um, you know, have that plan and accomplish what we want. Mm -hmm. In your experience, what are, what are some of those challenges that maybe you have experienced as, as an immigrant woman, or you've seen with the people that you work uh, in their process to accomplish their dreams? So the basic thing, the basic thing that I'm going to say about that, I, I think, you know, you are really preempting some of the things that is going to be in my course, but I'm happy to, to share, you know, some, some parts of it. So the basic thing that I think is we have to understand that money is a very spiritual being. Mm -hmm. And it's going to, it's going to um, fit into as much space as we let it fit into. Let me give you an example of what that means in plain English. So when I was in uh, grad school, when I first came here, I lived 
relatively well on $798 um, a month. And this $798 meant that I paid my rent, which took almost all, that, all of that money. I paid my uh, phone bills. I bought food. I took my boss, my, uh, boss to school. And I did everything that needed to be done with $798. Now, when I got to New Jersey, after I uh, had graduated, I could not live on $5,000. I was always broke. Mm-hmm. So I started to ask myself, what is the problem? So I started to track what I was spending money on. At the end of the first year of tracking, I canceled cable television because I realized that I spent $2,400 in a year on cable TV. And I said, wait, am I on that TV show? Am I, am I there? Because if I'm not there, I'm not paying this much money. So I took that out. And then I realized that I, can't, I, I started, my, my tastes were bigger. My needs were like, what I thought were my needs were different because now I had more money with me. So I thought, okay, I deserve to have this. I deserve to have newer clothes. Mm-hmm. I deserve to stop shopping and pay less for my shoes. I deserve, mm-hmm. I deserve. And then I said to myself, no, you, 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 if, you keep, if you keep thinking you deserve these things, you're never going to get there. So I, I decided to sit down and really separate my needs from my wants. And I nuked like really nuclear weapons on everything that I thought would wait. So I, I think that we, we as immigrants especially have to understand that do we want to delay gratification so that we can have an easier life, especially for our children, the next generation that we're supposed to be paving way for? Or are we going to be the immigrants who, are, who will leave debt for the people that we brought here? Because if you, you need to answer that question critically and that question can only happen in your budget. I, and I'll say one last thing about this. I went to speak at an event one day. It was Nigerian immigrants at the event. And I was talking about saving, about saving, about saving. And this man who brought his children to the event, he said, I, I, I cannot save. My money's at a stretch. I said, I don't believe you. He said, it's true. I said, okay, let's talk about how, what you spend money on in a, in a month. And he's talking and talking and counting. The next thing he counts is television. I said, really? Must you have that? You can have an antenna. It was like, but I need to watch. I said, you see, that's the, that's the deal. That's the trade-off. We have to stop seeing money as this unconscious, you know, being that oh, I can just do as I please. And then things are just going to fall in place. No, they will not fall in place. There are sacrifices that we need to make so that we can have a better day tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, um, that uh, I want to mention because I always recommend this book to people when they're like struggling is uh, What Colors Your Money? And that was a book written by Tope. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's such a valuable um, book because it really shows us that money is, um, it's an emotional thing, right? And we really need to understand what is our relationship with money a lot of uh as and i feel like as immigrants we come from different backgrounds and different things but depending on our backgrounds we have a different relationship with money and and i just i just wanted to put that out there because it is very very important to understand that the way we spend money has um more to do with the way that we feel about ourselves and about other people how it makes us feel and and top of really 
does a very well, um, good job at explaining how that works. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I came up with the concept of color of money after 15 years of practice. And I thought, you know, I'm now beginning to see a trend between the business owners who make it and those who don't. And so I decided to write some character traits and, you know, what I saw in people and then use that to describe people. And, you know, you could go on my website, ourfinancialcoach.com, take a free quiz and then determine what your money color is. But essentially what I'm trying to uh, get people to understand is that money is indeed an emotional issue. It is, it is beyond the physical. It is like the way you relate with it determines what, how much you have and how much you don't have. So it's, I, I think it's a first step when you are trying to create some self-awareness or you're even going to a relationship with somebody. It's better you both take the money color quiz so that you understand where you differ when it comes to money and then you can avoid some of the conflicts later on. Absolutely. And the people that are around you. One of, one of the things that, um, that I learned with you was identify the people that uh, I surrounded myself with uh, because that also determines how you, you know, how you spend your money. If your significant other is a big spender, then, you know, you got to watch out mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and things like that. Going back to to your um, to your story, Tope, tell us a little bit about what um, what were some of the biggest opportunities that you found once you arrived in the United States that uh, helped you accomplish your dream. Some of the hmm hmm good. So you know this is very funny. I think one of the one of the biggest uh, opportunities that I got. On the surface, it looks like it was a bad thing, but it was actually the best thing that ever happened to me, which was getting laid off from my job. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, I lost my job and it was the, the U.S. was belly up in terms of the depression uh, or the recession or whatever was going on that year. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I have this mortgage. I have this. I have that. And I don't have a job. But I was at home for four months and it really forced me to really realign myself with my plan. I realized that prior to that time, I could say I was working like a prostitute because I was just going to my job so that they would give me money. And it was like, how am I different from somebody who is sleeping with people for money? Mm-hmm. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I came to do in America. So I sat down and I thought, okay, how do I make sure that I align myself with my goals? So, you know, as if the, the you know, as if God wanted to test me, soon now, um, about four months after, I got three job offers. And I promptly picked one that had a huge title. And after three months, I, I left that job. I didn't lose it. I left it. I was like, no, this is not right. This is, I didn't spend four months at home to come back to this sort of life. And, you know, I went back to beg one of the people who had offered me a job earlier in the year, who, who was offering me 25% less than the job I just left because I realized that that was more aligned with my purpose. At that mm-hmm. job, I didn't have a big title. I didn't have a lot of money, but I, it was my entry into US politics. It was with the labor union. And not only did I have time to really grow my foundation, which I had started in Nigeria at the time, but I also got involved in issues like the fight for healthcare access, like you know, uh, teachers pay and teacher benefits. And I was like, yes, this is what I really want to do. I want to make sure that whatever I do, helps people to be better. 
And so I was in that job for six years. And I have to tell you that it really changed me. It didn't give me a lot of money, but it changed me and made me realize that I could actually be who I wanted to be here without moving back home necessarily. Wonderful. One, uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you about that, because I, I, I was, first of all, I was very proud of you when I saw your video at the um, uh, 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh my God, God, yes, I know her. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that experience. How did you, how did you end up doing that? That was such a crazy, crazy, crazy experience. It was unbelievable. But let me tell you, I almost didn't even get there. So like I said, I, I went to D.C. to work for a, um, a labor union from 2009 to 2015. And in 2012, an opportunity came to volunteer for the Obama campaign through my workplace. And then I was like, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going. I'm not going. And then one day I'm sitting on t uh, in my office and I saw the news and it said that Obama and Romney were neck and neck. I was like, what? No, this cannot happen. So I asked my boss, I said, I want to volunteer. Where should I go? They said, you can go to the battleground city of Ohio. So I went to Ohio two weeks before the election. We walked our behinds off and we won that state. But I was like, yes, this is it. I remember my dad, my dad, before he passed on, was a politician in Nigeria. He was very involved. He was on the phone with me the entire time of, on election night. Like I finally, you know, finally felt like, oh, I am doing exactly what my dad wanted me to do here. <laughs> so it was such a good bonding moment for us. It was, it was, it was insane. So I said, okay, well, you know, I'll just keep on getting involved. The next presidential election, I'm going to get involved. And so I thought, but life happened in 2015. I left that job because I lost my dad and I wanted to, again, recalibrate my life. The way tragedy makes you just recalibrate your life. So I, I did uh, leave the job and for four years, I did nothing, but just eat, sleep and teach. So one day um, I was feeling so sad that my dad had passed away. This was in 20, um, yeah, 2015. I was feeling so bad, so, so bad. You know, 2014, December. And then I decided to go do what I do not do normally, retail therapy, buy myself something that was crazy expensive just because I was having this out of body pain. So I went to this lady, she sells used designer clothes. So I bought this dress from her. And I got into my car and I put just for an insane amount of money. And I said, wait, where exactly are you going to wear this to? What is this contraption? And you don't do this. If I buy a dress that's more than $100, pinch me because there's a problem. So I was like, what am I going to do with this dress? And I can't re return it. Then mm -hmm. I said, oh, I got an idea. I'm going to wear it to the Obama uh, dinner. And I thought, Obama dinner, there's a problem with that. Obama doesn't know me. I don't know Obama. So... <laughs> Uh -huh. how, how am I supposed to get to the White House for dinner? So I kept the dress in my closet. <laughs> I'm looking at it. Nothing is happening. 2016, I'm like, the president is leaving this year. I, I either go to dinner at the White House this year or this dress is going to be wasted. <laughs> so, so I wrote an email to a friend of mine who works in the State Department. Again, when I try to tell this story in Nigeria, people don't understand that the State Department is so different. So I said to my friend, she works in the State Department, and I wrote uh, the, in fact, she worked for USAID. So I wrote in the title of the email, I said, do not laugh. That was the title of the email. In the body <laughs> of the email, 
I said, I have a dress that I want to wear to the president's um, dinner. And I have been thinking, I don't know which dinner, but it just occurred to me that the president usually invites Muslim members of Congress and Muslim ambassadors to the White House one night during the month of fasting for dinner. I said, if that's what I can get, I'll take it. So she replied and she wrote, ha, 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 ha. First of all, I don't work in the White House. Secondly, you're right. The president invites only these categories of people and you and I are not in that category. So I'm sorry, my friend, there's nothing I can do. I was like, oops, there goes my plan. So I went to Nigeria during Ramadan and I was there. The next thing, towards the end of Ramadan, I get an email from the White House to say that instead of inviting members of Congress this year, the president has decided to have an Eid party after Ramadan and invite 100 Muslim Americans. Oh my God. Yes, whose name is on that list? Mine. (laughs) (laughs) So the only problem I had, they said, uh, the the dress code is uh, business casual. I said, no, there's no business casual about this one. I am wearing the dress I bought for this occasion. So I get there, I am happy. All the security checks at the White House, I'm smiling. Even the one that had a dog, I'm like, bring the dog. Anything you have, bring it. I am going into this White House today. And I got there and I was very excited. But something changed in me that day. Because it was July 2016. And we were so free. The East Wing was open to us. We were walking around the entire place, like all kinds of places in the White House. We prayed in there. He, the president asked them to bring Thomas Jefferson's um, Quran. We were just like in the entire place feeling at home. And then as I was leaving the White House that day, I said, hmm, if Trump gets into the White House, you're never coming back here. You know that, right? And I said, okay, that means I have to get in the ring. So I went to my house and I, um, I applied for a job with the Hillary Clinton campaign. And I said, look, I have this campaign experience. I've done this before in Ohio. Put me in the battleground state of Virginia is what I said. They replied when they said, we can't put you in Virginia, but we'll put you in Michigan. I'm like, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I get to Michigan. It is in Grand Rapids. It is this white, conservative Christian town. And I'm black. I'm Muslim that wears a hijab. I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. This is not going to work. But my husband had flown in all the way from Nigeria to help me. And he was just supposed to drive me there and go back. When we got there, I said, dude. You cannot leave me here. There's no way I'm going to be in this town, standing out the way I stand out without somebody to protect me. So he was like, okay, I'll wait with you. How bad can it get? We were there for like three months. And wow. I walked my behind off. We walked, we walked. Eventually we lost the state. But again, you know, two things happened in that campaign that made me know that I gained powerfully. The first one is, of all the 200 and something organizers in that town, I was the one who was requested to speak on stage. I don't even know how I was chosen, but I, they said the request came from the headquarters in Brooklyn that I was the one who should speak. And so the entire Nigeria saw me on CNN and sent me screenshots of them yelling. Oh my God. <laughs> yelling at their TV and telling their entire family that they knew me. But to, the second thing that also happened, you know, with that was that this was 2016. In 2017, I was invited back to give the commencement speech at the Grand Rapids City High School. 
this is a school that had no black person, not one wow. black in the entire graduating class. Wow. Mm-hmm. But they invited me because when I was there the year before, I was on duty, which is to inspire, to encourage. I was relating with people, gay, straight, black, white, whatever. I was there to, you know, be with people and I, and I did it. So when they asked the class, the graduating class to, to nominate who would speak, they said it was unanimous. We want that lady who was in the campaign office. So, you know, I, I, I think, yes, I would have wished that Hillary was in the White House. I hope I'm allowed to say that, but she wasn't. But I know that that experience also developed me as a person. Wow. I mean, that's an incredible story. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I'm glad you did. And you, you, you got to experience that. That makes me think about, um, you know, somebody like you and, you know, with your with your background, your experience, you, you just said it right. You're black, you're Muslim, you're you're an immigrant as well. What are some of the things that you think immigrants like you, uh, people like us, bring to this country to enrich it and like make it great? No, I think I think uh, this is a country of immigrants, and I and I never want. Um, I think sometimes I forget it myself, but we should never forget it. This is a country. This is what makes America great at all: is the diversity of the cultures, the diversity of the stories, the diversity of the people, of the food, of the experiences. I have been to about 30 countries in the world. There is not a country like this where you can really find yourself in everything and find your place everywhere. So I want to say to immigrants when they come here, that do not try to fit in. Do not try to blend in. Try to stand out. Try to stand out. Let people see your original self. America is not looking for the typical straight jacket white man by bringing you here. They're looking for you. And so be you. Don't get here trying to cut your tongue. Don't cut, get here trying to change your hair color, change your skin color, change who you are just because you think that that will make you fit in. You know, I think we need to be bold about our experiences and about our rich, um, diverse heritage that we bring to this country because I think there's space for it. There's uh, room for it and there's um, opportunity for it. I 100% agree with you. Um, Tope, another question that I have is, because I think this is this is probably an experience that we all share when we get here, when you got here 20 years ago, what mm. was some of the things that you, that were like a big shock for you? Like, you know, <laughs> like the, your biggest adjustment to the American life? Ay, ay, ay. I think, <laughs> I think one of the funny things that was shocking for me was the, is the way Americans advertise things. Okay. Oh like in, in Nigeria, you cannot be talking about your competition in your advertisement. You, you just can't. So, oh, wow. No, it, like, no, you can, Coke cannot be advertising and be talking and be dissing Pepsi. Like, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> isn't, this, isn't this criminal? That's the, you know, the fun. It was hilarious. It was really hilarious. Another thing that was so shocking to me was how wide the roads were. I, I went to school in Georgia. So it's not like here in D.C. where there are four lanes. No, I'm talking eight lanes on one side. I'm like, God, like I, it, they almost made me dizzy. But in terms of um, um, adjustment mentally, emotionally, I finally realized that 
what makes you succeed academically is different in the US. I was the best graduating student in my um, undergraduate class in University of Lagos. And I got here and the first two semesters I struggled. I really struggled. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, why did I succeed back home? That, and I'm now struggling here. I realized that there were, there's so many factors here that are not applicable back home. One of them is there's nobody that does not look like me in Nigeria, none. Everybody mm-hmm. looks like me. Everybody is my color, or maybe a few shades darker, or a few shades lighter. So I'm not looking at people looking at me a certain way. There's nobody that does not talk like me in Nigeria. Here, I have to like think, are they hearing me? Can they hear me? Am I talking too fast? Am I talking too slow? I was like playing all kinds of scenarios in my head. And then now that I'm in academia, I think I can, I now have appreciation for this. In Nigeria, empty barrels make the most noise. So if you know the stuff, you let your exam papers speak for you. In America, if you know the stuff, you better speak up. Because if you don't speak up, you're not getting that 10% class participation grades. So I was not, I was very reluctant to speak in class. I was like, no, why, why are they talking? And then people would talk, I'm like, oh my God, that made no sense. What is wrong with you? But I realized they were only working for their own class participation point and I had to work for mine. So there were so many adjust, adjustments. And, you know, those things have carried over to work for me. In, you know, in America, I still cannot understand how you can be, you can be happy with your colleague and the next day you lay them off. I, I don't understand it. In, in my culture, you can't just fire somebody like that. Like if you're going to fire somebody, lay them off, they would have known because you will never get along with them. There will have been this big problem. But here, somebody can just wake up tomorrow and tell you, Lily and I quit, quit. What do you mean quit? Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I asked myself, wait, is there a problem? Did I miss something? No, you didn't miss anything. You just keep the train moving. So, you know, it's such a different, different, different life. But, um, you know, we're here. We keep on making it work. We do. We do. And I totally relate to what you're saying, especially like the different uh, ways that we understand uh, organizations and management, right? Like it's more about relationships that for, for Latinos, that is the case too, as well. So it's, it's more about relationships and, and um, how you build the, the place of work around like the people that you know more than I come here to do this task and then I leave, right? I come for, for us, it's more I come here to do this task, but you know, there's also um, a, a level of relationship building that becomes so important for us that makes it really difficult to do what you just described, mm-hmm. to be like, okay, uh, you know, we have to let you go today and people, <laughs> you know, out of nowhere. Um, so yeah, that is that is absolutely true. Are there some things, and I know you've been here for 20 years, um, and are there some things that you miss about uh, Nigeria? I, I think that I know you travel a lot when, you know, at, at least prior to COVID. Um, tell yeah. us a little bit about Nigeria and like your life there and the place that you grew up and the things that you miss the most uh, from, from, from there. So first of all, let me tell you that um, tomorrow, um, February 27th, yeah, makes yeah. it 28 days that I came back from Nigeria or something like that. Yeah. And How many days? 28 days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tomorrow is 28 days that I came back from Nigeria. 
And it also means that I'm on my way back to Nigeria in, in a few weeks as well. And that's because I cannot let go of the happiness that is Nigerian people. I'm telling you, like if you go on my Instagram or my Facebook, you would see that when I was in Nigeria in January, we had a wedding in my family and it was like the Nigerian way. Like, you know, Nigerians, we're loud. We take up all the oxygen in the room. Like we have big parties. We have, we leave life out so loud. I, I miss that. I miss, you know, the dancing, the community, the singing, the food. And so I try to make sure that I do not stay too far away from there. Another thing that I miss about Nigeria is the opportunity to make impact, you know? So through our work at United for Kids Foundation, we're able to reach children from low-income families. I, I yearn for that. My soul yearns for that consistently and constantly. So I try to make sure that I, I don't stay out of Nigeria for longer than three months so that I don't forget exactly what I'm, what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. When you think about what other people, what people in America think about Nigeria, when they hear Nigeria, what in your head, what would you like people to think when they hear the, when they hear the word Nigeria? What do you, what, what do you, what's the picture that you want them to have in their head? I don't even know, but I know that when I, When I tell people I'm Nigerian and they uh, tell me things like, oh, Nigeria, isn't there where there's corruption? Isn't that where there is uh, some conflict in some region? I immediately respond and say, oh, have you been to Baltimore? Or yeah. did you, have you, have you seen some of like, the cities that went bankrupt in America? Please don't tell me. Everywhere has its own problems. But when people, what I want people to go away with is, I want them to tell me that, oh, Nigeria, I've watched some Nollywood movies on Netflix and I love them. I have eaten some Nigerian jollof rice and I think it's better than Ghanaian jollof rice. I want people to tell me that they have, they have some very, very good Nigerian friends because we're good people. You know, there's no way one in five Africans is Nigerian. So when people tell me, oh, Nigerians and the advanced fee fraud and the 419, I'm like, If one in, in five black persons is Nigerian, they, you, there's a chance you've met one of the bad ones. But think about the fact that there are so many good ones you haven't met. So I want people to think about the Nigerian people, the Nigerian culture, the Nigerian food, our arts industry, and you know, just uh, our excellence, with the contributions that we've made to countries like the US. That's what I want people to really ask me about. That's, that's awesome. And I want you to know that when I hear the word Nigeria, I think of you. And that's what, you know, I think that everybody there is like you, which is awesome. And one day I, I hope you, I can go with you and you can show me all the best about your country. Um, so um, one last thing, and just for... Um, For our audience, I think it's important that they hear um, from from our experiences, right, and from from our places. What advice could you give new immigrants that will help them adjust to the new culture, uh, or you know, become successful contributing members of the American society? Um, don't stop. Don't stop. Um keeping notes and keeping your focus on your dream. That same thing that brought you here is what is going to make you succeed. 
don't replace that dream with somebody else's dream. And people are going to tell you, especially those who have come before you, who come from maybe like a Nigerian will tell another Nigerian, oh, don't worry about going to get a master's. It's too long, it's too expensive. Meanwhile, that's your own goal. Don't let anybody project their fears and their insecurities and their definition of what the American experience is on you. You come here because that your dream can propel you. It can fuel you and it is sufficient. If you came here to be the governor of California, you can do it. Don't let people tell you because people are going to, people, somebody who has been here for 20 years is going to tell you, ah, don't even go there. Eh? You can't be the governor of California because they couldn't do it. Doesn't mean that you mm-hmm. can't do it. And sometimes for us immigrants, that's the, that's the, the challenge. That's what holds us back. We start to assume the fears and the insecurities of our predecessors. And you're not here to fulfill their own wishes and their own fears. You are here to create inspiration for your successors. So don't forget that. That is a beautiful message and I receive it and I hope other people do. Well, with that, I want to say uh, thank you, Simone, but again, for giving me the opportunity to be here and uh, hosting this episode and you know, talking to Tope, who again, it's somebody that I have a lot of admiration and respect for. And uh, thank you, Tope, for, for sharing a piece of you with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really had a good time. Thank you both so much. So I have a quick question for you, Tope, from my husband. He wanted to know what does <laughs> dodo mean? <laughs> so, so that's very funny because... Um, so our farm is called Dodo Farms. Yes. If you hear Dodo in Yoruba language, which is from the southwest of Nigeria, Dodo is fried plantain. And I know Spanish people eat this a lot. Mm-hmm. Fried plantains. But our um, farm is not named after the plantain. <laughs> our, our farm is named, is called Dodondawa. Dodondawa is long. So we thought to shorten it. Now, what does Dodondawa mean? Dodondawa is, um, is a salutation for the war generals. My husband's last name is Balogun. Balogun is a, a name that is given to, traditionally given to war generals in the, in the Yoruba army in the ancient past. So when people hear his name is Balogun, they say, oh, Balogun Dodondawa, that's the salutation. They add it to it. Like, almost like, you know, you are hyping somebody up. So mm. he thought, okay, well, Americans will not be able to pronounce Dodondawa. Let's just make it Dodo. So... Okay, I see. See, thanks for the explanation. He was he was actually guessing that maybe it had something to do with, um, you know, cassava is used quite um, across the board. It's yuca in Latin America, in Jamaica, it's used for like baking to to make like these patties that we call cassava. And mm. I know some people boil it, and in Africa, they actually. Um, grind the leaves, right? Cassava flour or cassava leaves, they cook it. So I think we were assuming maybe it had something to do with that. No, so we call that, that cassava product on our side, the powder or grain is called gari. And it's my side of Nigeria. We eat it. We could eat in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Like Right, right, right. Okay, very good. Um, we wanted to hear a bit more about your CEO, um, organization and I'm hoping that we'll be able to collaborate uh, yeah. here coming up in the future because as I expressed before I have some trauma that I need to find healing 
Oh, you, you know, you're in the right place. So she is something that in 2014, I went to University of Oxford to do a, um, an executive uh, diploma. And while I was sitting in the room, there were maybe about 50 women who were from around the world doing this program. And while I was sitting in the room one day waiting for the classes to start, I just thought, how powerful will it be if we had women of African descent, women who look like me in this space where they could network but also do something more. And that something more was to talk about things that, um, that deny us the opportunity to really be great. And I looked at myself at that time, this was 2014. My dad had suffered a stroke. I you know, had just been through a divorce that was painful after a, um, an abusive marriage of three years. I had lost three pregnancies at the time. You know, and I thought these were traumas that, I was carrying around, but I couldn't talk about because people say, hey, you know, Nigerians, we're very superstitious. So say, hey, ah, I see if you say this will come back. But I needed to release these things and I needed to say how they were stopping me from conquering the world, essentially. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to gather us in a room like this and we're going to just make it happen. And I, I was very bold and I brought out a, a notebook and I wrote all my ideas. It was great. Well, when I left the room, I was numb. I was like, no way. Who are you going to put on the stage to talk about something that is painful to them? Nobody's going to talk about that. So I let it go. But in 2017, I thought, what is the worst that can happen? I'm going to do the first year. And if people don't talk, they don't talk. But I'm going to do it anyway. And so I, you know, brought this up. And it was unbelievable. We had 60 people in Columbia, Maryland. And the experience would never leave me. And the, the not funny, but the, the ironic part about that event was that I was hosting Shio, talking about uncomfortable conversations while having a miscarriage at the time. So I'm sitting down talking to women about pain and I'm finding healing in the pain because people are talking about their own pain as well. And I'm like, gosh, I'm not alone. So I'm not a failure. So because I lost my job, because I lost my babies, because this, it doesn't make me the worst person and the most unfortunate human being. And so from that day in 2017 in August, we have done 10 editions in London. We have done in the US and we've done in Lagos, Nigeria. And the goal is that when we come back after this craziness of COVID, that we will begin to, we will begin these conversations again, but not just to talk, but we would also find a way to reach women who are from the low income um, families who have gone to school, they've done everything they're supposed to do. And then we will give them coaches and mentors from our own group of women who, you know, gather together at a shield so that we pull people up as we're also pulling ourselves up. And then we would also partner with corporations to give us mentors as well. So there will be three levels of mentoring, coaching, and growth that, this, that women can, um, can really um, experience. But I want to extend this beyond Africa. And um, Lillian will probably uh, recognize that beyond Africa and say I that. do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I want, to, I want to reach Black people beyond Africa because they are Black Latinos. They are Black people in the Caribbean, our brothers and sisters in the Caribbean, and, there, and so many parts of the diaspora. 
So mm-hmm. when we make this impact, when we talk about black women, I want to make sure that the women all over the world, whether they live on the continent, they came from the continent or not, as long as we share this identity of being women of African descent, that we can, you know, lift one another up. Yes, absolutely. I can't, I can't wait and I look forward to it because we do need to um, focus on building bridges and uh, fostering healthier relationships among um, Black women, women of color. Um, uh, That's a conversation that I'm hoping to have at some point here coming up, talking about the relationship among um, women of color here in the United States, because it, uh, I'm still, I'm traumatized. <laughs> I'm trying to make yeah. sense. I'm trying to make sense of it. Um, we should be having each other's backs, but uh, so many times I experience quite the opposite. And so I'm hoping to bring somebody on to have that conversation. But this has <laughs> that been is, that is good because I think that is a conversation that I want us to have in a safe space, like um, like she because like I told you before women black women latino women all kinds of women we're all looking at one another from the lens of somebody else and Mm. i'm sorry we're looking at one another from the lens of the white man and that lens is telling us it's not enough if the latinos have it then the caribbeans cannot have it if the caribbeans have it then the black um uh, african cannot have it i was reading this story yesterday and it made me remember you this um this somebody carried like we say, Nigeria carried a placard, started saying that why are they allowing black British actors to act roles that belong, that tell the stories of black Americans? And I said, oh my God, are we really going to have this conversation? Are we, are we seriously going to fight about this? But then I, I realized that it is all about scarcity because it's about Hollywood and it's like mm-hmm. only space for one black person in the room. That black person cannot then be oh my God, a black British or black Nigerian, why, 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 why? So when we start to talk about this and create abundance so that we don't look at ourselves from the lens of the person who makes us think is scarce, yes. then we will all heal and realize there's enough to go around. Absolutely. Okay. You give me chills. <laughs> you give me chills. When, you, when I hear you talking about like what you're doing with CEO, and um you know the way that you i was talking to a friend actually um last week about you know your approach to finances yes but like everything that comes behind that that limits our ability to be successful and 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 what you're doing with ceo it's incredible i i mean i cannot wait to see this project grow uh, and and touch as many lives as it can because it's amazing Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes. And I want to be one of the, bring to Atlanta, please. Atlanta, Atlanta. I want to have one here so I can have the experience. We'll be there. I promise. I promise. Let COVID go away. We we started swinging in January by the grace of God. We'll be there. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. We might have to learn to live with COVID, huh? Um, this may this may be a new normal so we're gonna have to figure out a way to work with it and and Mm -hmm. and keep living right and flourishing i know i know i know i know well this has been another great episode of the immigrant experience in america quite riveting i enjoyed listening in thanks to lillian for being our guest host today um you were awesome excellent job and um listeners join us again for another episode of the immigrant experience in america 
This one will be aired in March as a celebration of Women's History Month. And uh, we're looking forward to sharing all women throughout the month of March. So tune in every Wednesday. We're going to try to do it as, as often as maybe every two or three days. But for sure, every Wednesday an episode will be posted. Thanks for listening. Walk good. Stay healthy. Thank you. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.